Welcome to the 32nd International Documentary Film Festival Amsterdam. My name is Dana Linsen and I'll be talking to David Shields about his film Martian Lynch, A History, which has been selected for the Best of the Fest selection and also uh, for the re-releasing history program. And I think that would be a good starting point. David, welcome um, to maybe uh, position uh, Martian Lynch, an, an American football player, um, but also this idea about re-releasing history um, and how that film fits into that. It really does, that he, in a way, one could argue, is trying to re-release history himself. So much of what the film is about is the way in which a dominant American narrative, American media narrative, sports narrative, tries to impose a certain kind of categorical way of thinking upon the athletes, turning them into essentially puppets or yeah, essentially puppets. And so much of what you could argue that Marshawn Lynch does is he's trying to release history or re-release history in the IDFA terminology because what Lynch does is he refuses to answer the questions as asked, which is essentially an artistic gesture in the sense that you know, that most of us march around with our regular lives answering the questions asked of us. But the beginning of art is to sort of question things and to sort of peek underneath things. And so Marshawn Lynch, he's now 33 years old, is retired from the professional football league. But he has left a real legacy of eloquent silence and mimicry. There's a beautiful Albert Camus quote who says, the only way to deal with an unjust society is to be so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I mean, that's an awfully good summary of what Marshawn Lynch does. He tries to be free. He tries not to speak anyone else's narrative. And he shows the poetic and political possibilities of being silent or cryptic in the face of a kind of American media brainwash. So you just mentioned the, the, the Albert Camus quote. That could be, have been a perfect quote to open your film with. I Instead know. you open Melville. With, with Melville. And I was immediately thinking about uh, Bartleby, who was the, the character who's having this in-between position between doing something and refusing and rather not doing it. Um, but it's another quote, right? It's a great, I mean... I know that we found the Camus quote pretty late and we thought of swapping it out and it seemed a little literal. I mean, it seemed somehow Melville seems okay because he's an American writer and somehow bringing in Camus, I don't know, it seemed a little high flown. And also it explains, you're right, it explains the movie awfully well. The Melville quote that we go, that we went with is the very opening line, the epigraph of the whole film is him writing about Nathaniel Hawthorne saying, he says no in thunder, and not even the devil can make him say yes, which is an awfully beautiful summary of Marshawn Lynch's position. You know, he refuses to be an object, he wants to be a subject, he wants to be an agent of his own narrative. You know, to go back to Bartleby, who always says, I would prefer not to. And Bartleby has, you know, become uh, almost a Kafka-esque figure of American life that, you know, he, all he says is, I would prefer not to. 
but in the face of a Wall Street financier to, to prefer not to is kind of an Occupy Wall Street. It's a way to say, you know, no in thunder. And that's what the movie is, is a sort of love song to Marshawn Lynch saying no in thunder. So when you have a, a protagonist or a main character or a figure who refuses to talk, we can talk a little bit more about uh, what you decided to do instead. But my first impulse as a journalist would be, oh, but I'm the one who get him to, to speak. Talk. Did you try that at all? We definitely did. And I think of myself as having decent persuasive powers as well. And of course, as a, a measure of respect, a white filmmaker making a film about a black celebrity, the last thing I wanted to do was to impose my narrative on him without at least approaching him. So four years ago, when we started the movie, I approached him through his representatives and I showed him a beat sheet, a treatment, a scene sheet. We had a fairly lengthy, you know, 20 page summary of what we imagined the film would be. And I always thought they would come around, but his his position was extremely Bartleby-esque. We won't impede the film, that we won't block the film, but we won't participate in it either. He and his representatives maintained that entire position over four years. Then we showed the movie in Oakland, August the 7th, I think it was, and he came up to me after the film and he said, I wanted to hate on you, but I couldn't because you did a damn good job with it, which I thought was a lovely, complicated statement. How dare you make the movie without my participation? But I couldn't, to me, means I actually watched the film and engaged with it, and you did a damn good job with it, to me, implied that he didn't feel in any way violated by the film, and in a way felt he recognized himself. Again, I'm just am guessing, but... That was a lovely and very characteristic response. So for those who haven't seen the film, they're thinking, how could he have made this film without him participating? So tell me about what you did. What we did, you know, we had a, a few responses. One, okay, that we tried Marshawn. Two, do we give up the film, which we certainly thought of. Three, do we speak to all of his friends and acquaintances and colleagues? That seemed rather not particularly fascinating. So, you know, as, as you know, pre a previous book of mine is called Reality Hunger, A Manifesto. I also have another remix book called War is Beautiful, The New York Times Pictorial Guide to the Glamour of Armed Conflict, which is a critique of, of New York Times war photography, which strikes me as sort of pornographically beautiful, the way that Times runs color pictures on the front page or splash page, which feel like practically war propaganda. So I'm familiar with and conversant with and comfortable with remix and repurposing and sampling. So what we did was through an army of researchers and collaborators and assistants and that, you know, that we found thousands of clips from, of Marshawn Lynch from childhood in Oakland to playing college football at, at UC Berkeley, to playing professionally in Buffalo, New York, to playing in Seattle, to returning to Oakland, that we found, I think, something like 5,000 clips on the web. Public? Yeah, it's all found 
on the web. You know, the web is this amazing resource, obviously. And, you know, I had a copyright lawyer on speed dial that we had so many issues, legal, ethical, financial, political, whereby how can one re-release history? How can one remix found footage? The key points being take as brief a clip as possible. We have 770 clips over an 84-minute film, an average of seven seconds per per shot. Two, always be making a cultural commentary, which I think the film clearly does, and make that commentary legible to a so-called average viewer. So the film attempts to be transformative. It takes its found footage, and you might say re-releases -re -re it. It takes a football play, a press conference, and shows the very deep political structures animating that conversation so that we show what looks like a rather anodyne non-answer from Marshawn Lynch and by juxtaposing it with the history of American race relations show the very deep roots of Marshawn Lynch's resistance. Because something that you're doing, you're not making just a supercut of all his non-answers. Hardly, hardly. Um, but at the same time, you're also really um, grounding this in the in the bigger history of Oakland and uh, University of California, uh, Berkeley, which is a highly political uh, university. Can you talk a little bit about that and also why you decided that it was important to put that in in the in the film? Sure. The Oakland and the Berkeley, the East Bay, you know, Northern California part is really crucial. You know, partly I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in a very political left-wing family. It's in a way, the film is a wash in 1960s and 70s Oakland. You know, the Black Panthers, the Hells Angels, the first African-American Studies Department, uh, the Oakland Raiders, you know, just the very, I mean, for me, in many ways, you know, you could say the 60s, the center of the 60s was sort of May 68 Paris or, but in, for me, it was sort of 1967 San Francisco and the Bay Area. Like, for me, the 60s happened as much or more in California as it did anywhere. And he, in very many ways, is a product of Oakland. There's a certain kind of savvy, symbolic, subversive, counter-narrative that is an Oakland resistance. It's not the resistance of Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Paris, or New York. It's, it's Oakland. You know, it's a, it's a style of being, which is to, to me, what we say in the U.S. is sort of subvert the dominant paradigm. Don't even accept the, the conventional narrative. Don't quarrel with the conventional narrative just completely rejected. And I think he is so much the byproduct of an Oakland way of thinking in which I'll refuse you by not even answering your question. I'll not say to you, your question is wrong. I'll just talk about something completely different. And there's an immense poetic and political power to that, I think. So when I first read your book, uh, Reality Hunger, I totally fell for it 
I believe that every word in there was written by you because I just picked it up and sure. I thought this is an interesting, actually I thought this is an interesting title, let's, let's read this book. And then halfway I started thinking, hmm, this sounds familiar, this sounds familiar, and then it turns out that half of the book is composed of quotes by other people. So when I watched your film, I was prepared. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, we have all this, this, this uh, reappropriated footage, um, but also you're creating another narrative by putting the present in the past or the past in, in the present and making some kind of a uh, construction. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, that's a beautiful connection between Reality Hunger, a manifesto, a book that came out in 2010, and which tries to argue for new forms for the 21st century, tries to collapse differences between fiction and nonfiction, tries to argue for new ways of thinking about copyright and intellectual property. And I think in many ways, a lot of those things have come true. I mean, I think that um, in many ways, I think of reality hunger being the theory and a lot of the books and films I've done over the last 10 years, this is the first film I, I wrote and produced and directed, but quite a few of the, of the projects I've, I've done are an attempt to show what the reality hunger theory actually looks like at ground level. And I think of this film as being a fairly explicit example of it. It's almost hard to understand the movie, I think, without understanding reality hunger as being the intellectual architecture behind it, which is, I'm terribly interested, you know, in remix culture and hip hop and sampling, and that, you know, there's a power of, of transgression. I just love that you sort of fell into the little mousetrap I had built, and that as, as you realize, you know, who's saying this? Is it the author? Is it Schopenhauer? Is it Nietzsche? Is it Emerson? Who is talking here? In that way, the book is beautifully practicing, I hope, what it's actually preaching. And something like that happens in the Marshawn Lynch movie, I hope, in which I rub together very contemporary clips of, say, Trump or Colin Kaepernick or Charlottesville, and then ancient footage going back to American slavery. And that I think what happens, I hope, if the film is working, the viewer starts to ask oneself, you know, whose argument is this? To what degree am I, maybe as a white viewer, implicated in this particular narrative? To what degree are these Marshawn Lynch's thoughts? Or what, to what degree are these a white filmmaker's thoughts? Um, can one do this? In what sense is this film, in its form, trying to replicate Marshawn Lynch's rebellion. I'd sort of like to think the film has a sneaky subversion that is related to Marshawn Lynch's. In a way, you could say, and please don't take this as a criticism, but you could say that the film also refuses to give an answer to why he's not speaking. I don't know, I hope not we're not spoiling, but no. um, in a way that's also the political stance of the film, like, okay, we're analyzing, we're deconstructing, we're reconstructing, but we're not going to solve the mystery for you. And at the same time, of course, this is the big suspense line of the film, because you're hoping that it will right. be, that it will be uh, 
resolved. Was that clear from the beginning that you felt like I will never get there or I will never bring up an answer of my own? I mean, I think I partially agree with you. I partially think, I mean, obviously there's no one single answer. I think there's part of him that is maybe probably a little shy. There's part of him that probably is bored by all the questions. There's part of him that wants to save his own soul and not become, you know, a puppet of someone else. There's part of him that is a deeply political human being and is full of very real rage about an imposed narrative. And I think the film suggests a variety of reasons. But I guess that to me it doesn't, the film finally doesn't just sort of shrug and say, well, I'm not sure. It suggests some pretty strong evidence as to what Marshawn Lynch is doing. To me, the film is sort of, the silence was born in Oakland, deepened in Buffalo, went viral in Seattle, became political again in Oakland through Trump and Kaepernick, and then got handed off as cultural legacy to the next generation of African-American athletes through Marshawn Lynch's retirement. And so for me, I think the film argues pretty clearly that in his evolving political consciousness, that silence came to really uh, speak truth to power, in, in, as they say. That, um, and yet, as you say, the film is, is relatively open-ended that we include counter voices like Fox News and Trump and you know, sportscasters who are, are critical of Trump. And I think there would be possible to misread the film as, oh yeah, Marshawn Lynch is, you know, a jerk or a thug or a gangster and, you know, good riddance. But I think that would be a very perverse misreading of the film. Yeah, I agree that. would be with hard to read. Because I think it's, it's precisely this diversity of, of possible answers. Right that is in a way, are, or are in a way creating this, the identity of the, of the character without putting it in, 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 your, in your face. One of the things you just said, I think I have to pick up on is like his refusal to play a puppet in this, in this discourse of sports journalism, uh, which is analyzed very well through the use of image in the films that, is, that all those conversations uh, the press conferences, the little quote you get after a game. Right. Um, how how silly and, and, and also kind of and predictable, yeah. and, and predictable they are. So he really took a stance there. And then, as you say, this this sort of moved on or, or, or transfigured into a next generation of uh, American um, black American athletes. And then... Um, this is also where the film ends, and I find this fascinating, what's happening there. Right, at the end of the film, you know, not to give too much away, but at the end of the film we have sort uh, of... But we can maybe yeah. discuss it because it's also so important. Yeah, at the end, five minutes or so. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the film because it's so lyrical, and at this point the viewer pretty much knows the movie's over because the music is signaling that, the editing rhythms, it's clearly the movie's over, and what what we show is a whole series of white coaches, black athletes, football players, basketball players, all kinds of people who are exactly, you know, pretty closely have learned from 
Marshawn Lynch how to give non-answer answers. And there's something very funny about it, and it's very endearing, but it's also like, wow, this is how power gets exchanged. This is how power gets handed on. And that, um, you know, you could say, okay, it's a relatively trivial thing. Who cares if an athlete answers a question? But when I showed the film in, in Los Angeles, an Oakland rapper happened to come to the screening, and he said, no black Oakland kid would see Marshawn Lynch's refusal to speak to the mainly white media as anything else except a black kid refusing the investigations of the Oakland Police Department. I thought that was such a powerful way of seeing it, and the way that he said it was better than I've paraphrased it. And that, you know, you could say, who cares if an athlete answers these stupid questions, but protest takes surprising forms. And I think, you know, in American culture, some of Marshawn Lynch's sayings have become sort of memes in the culture. Even Barack Obama used one, right? Yeah. You know, where he says, I'm just here so I won't get fined or um, it's, it's all about the action boss or, uh, it's, you know, various lines are sort of, they've become permanently viral in American cultures. You know, how do we all figure out how to exist and uh, protest against a racist capitalist society. You know, there are many ways. And Marshawn Lynch's fascinating Oakland-esque symbolism has had a caring power that other people's resistance hasn't had. I would argue that in a way, his silence has carried more weight than, say, Colin Kaepernick's kneeling, because that silence is sort of endlessly repeatable. And so, anyway, I'm, um, you know, I'm just very moved by, and, you know, I think the film asks all of us, you know, as we end with the film, with sort of white coaches doing the same thing, you know, how can white people be part of the resistance? How can they be part of Black Lives Matters? How can they be part of a resistance to Donald Trump? Well, Marshawn Lynch suggests one of many ways of resisting, I think, and that's really the pretty clear thematics of the film. I don't think the film comes out in some super easy way, but, um, you know, it has, I hope, a kind of exciting how do we stay human? How do we not become robots? How do we become, how do we, you know, in that Camus quote, you know, um, how do we stay free? That's a question that we all ask ourselves. I'm glad that you care to answer some of my questions and, and put some more questions <laughs> right. in the air. I was really afraid that you would also just say, mm hmm. Exactly. Thank I you. Thank you for the question. Hey, thank you for asking me that I was question. Exactly. Really not prepared. I know. How to move from, I'm not from sure. there? I'm enough of a performance artist to, to do that. Suggested that we record 20 minutes of silence. That would have been brilliant. Yeah. At the same time, I'm really glad Thanks that you cared to talk. Thank, thank you, you so lovely much. Lovely to chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ITVA 2019 podcast. Please rate, review 
and subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice.